0: That was nice. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. You know, uh, man, shredding my birthday, that's exactly what I want, brother. So that's, my my 80s rock and roll just came alive there. So I really appreciate that, even though I know that was the Beatles. But um, yeah, it is my 18th anniversary of the 16th remembrance of my 21st birthday today. So um, carry the two he's 107. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 55. Double nickels. I can't drive. 55. Anyway, uh, speaking of, uh, of, of vintage, uh, <laughs> since that is me, uh, you know, one of the slogans we have for this church is vintage Christianity for the next generation. And maybe we should have vintage pastors for the next generation. <laughs> no, I don't know. But uh, one of the things that I have to kind of pinch myself over um, is the fact that We get the opportunity to worship in these spaces, and I love the fact of the rich, dynamic uh, history and legacy Uh, Augustana Lutheran Church, who met in this building for many years, from 1882 onward until 2012 when they sold us the building. We moved in in 2013, and the building right next to us, which we uh, use uh, uh, in addition to this one and for worship... uh, in uh, we moved downtown in 2003, which was actually two previous churches: the church that built the building, and then the church that occupied it for 75 years before we moved in in 2003. And in both, and in both <coughs> uh, services where we commemorated what God had done in these spaces and the moving forward, both of them handed me a physical baton. I still have them in my office, of where they wanted to pass the baton on to the next generation. In fact, when we did it over at the other building, uh, my son at that time, uh, Calvin, who was seven, uh, asked, what are they going to do with that baton when I was sitting next to him before that part of it? And I said, well, they're going to hand me that as a symbol of, you know, passing on to the next generation. And, and he just looked at me with kind of fear in his eyes, and he said, don't drop it, Dad. And, and I have done everything I can for these last few years. Just don't screw this up. Just don't drop it. And so he knows his dad too well to to say that. So uh, one of the things as we're looking at the future of hope, we've done some planning this last year, and it's involved a lot of people. Some of the folks, well, Chris is only still on stage, but Chris is part of the the process as well, uh, was Worship 3.0. Just working through, I think if I did my math right, uh, it's around 70, 75 people. We're involved in input and discussions and, and teams and trying to figure things out. And, and it came with where do we want to go in the future in our worship services primarily for the downtown campus. Okay, so I know we're, we have a, a Lower Town campus and a location, and we will, this next January, uh, have a location started up in uh, Columbia Heights. And so, but just for this location, we're looking at what, what, would, what would it be like? And the first iteration was when he started the church. The second iteration, 2.0, was when we moved downtown. We gave it some extensive thought and research, and we did that again. And so there were, out of that, there were 25 recommendations, a lot of which were just kind of small, little behind-the-scenes kind of things that involve, you know, different ways we're going to do things, but some of which are up front. And we're going to start unrolling those to kind of let you know. Uh, so some of them... Uh, some of them are, are, will take a long time to implement. Some of them will happen immediately. So come September 8th, there will be some changes because uh, September 8th is when we're kicking this off. And there's no other way. You can't ease into some of these things. For instance, worship times. We're changing the worship times, okay? <laughs> Just a little bit. Uh, we're changing it from 8.45 instead of 9. Instead of 11, it'll be 10.30. Uh, and the reason for this is that it? what we've gotten feedback over the years, especially from college students, uh, is that it, it allows college students to get back, especially to their dormitories. And Hope still has a lot of college students, obviously not as many in the summer, but in the school year. And it allows them to get back in time for their dorm lunches and all that by 12, 15, 12, at, at the latest. And so it works out much better for that. Plus, it allows people to get out a little bit earlier for their days. And so we've gotten a lot of feedback and I know there's people kind of on different sides of this. It, it means 15 minutes earlier uh, for uh, first service, but it means half an hour earlier for second service. So if you're here uh, at the 11 o'clock service, it would, it would actually kick in at, at, at 10.30. Uh, and so how do we get it? Wait a minute now. How does that math add up, right? And so one of the ways that it adds up is we're actually going to start <laughs> on time. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> And I know you're like, there's this thing that's happened in Hope's history, and especially since we moved downtown, where there's this phrase. It's called hope time. Oh, I'm not on time. I'm on hope time. And so it just means that you're, you're five to seven minutes late. And, that, and you think, well, that's kind of, they don't really start their services anywhere near on time. So, you know. And the reason was for that when we moved downtown was we had a lot of issues with parking and people getting used to that idea. And so what's it like to come downtown and all that kind of a deal? Uh, it's been 16 years. I think you got it figured out, okay? And so we're moving to, to save five minutes, five minutes by actually starting on time. If you're late, we're always a church that loves late people. Just be late. I don't, that's fine. But just, just to let you know, heads up, September 8th, starting then, it will start on time. Uh, You're also thinking, wait, that still doesn't make up the the whole time, because right now we run about an 85-minute service. If you add the fives, it's about an hour and a half. If we're brand new this week, we go to about 1230. Here's the deal, though. that doesn't work with you, just just leave. I mean, I don't mean that. That sounds bad, but I'm just saying it's okay. But we're going to shorten that a little bit. Our worship services are going to go from 85 minutes to 75 to 80. And we're just, a lot of research we've done in different churches and kind of looking at that, what is that? where, where does that come from? Well, five minutes of that will come from the starting on time. And the other five minutes are, believe it or not, we are going to shorten our sermon length a little bit. <laughs> not today. <laughs> September 8th. Not today. Trust me, because we're in this question series right now, and I've got a doozy. So, uh, And plus, part of that is, uh, Core actually did this a couple weeks ago. He ended early, and he got a lot of heat from the children's Because they're like, whoa, 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 what's going on? Are we implementing this already? I was like, no, I just ended early. Don't do that. Because they're still doing things with the kids, and it just kind of messes everything up. I see kids workers going, yeah, what's the deal? We're just having our good part now, and you're coming and getting the kids. So, uh, and you could get your kids anytime, too. That's fine, too. Just go ahead if that's what you want to do. So, wow, am I Norwegian today or what? Just do whatever you want, you know? Don't want to make you upset. Hey, I have a question. We're in a series this summer on questions. And we took this spring, and we... Got a whole bunch of questions from folks, and we, uh, Erica Messerly did a great job of putting them on a, on a spreadsheet, kind of summarize them, put them in, in, in different chunks, and man, it was a whole bunch uh, of, uh, she had actually tabs, and this thing was way organized, and it allowed us to say, what are, if we're going to do 10 weeks, what are some of the themes that kept coming up, in that? and definitely, uh, we got quite a few se- uh, questions on the issue of sexuality. So, uh, one of the, then just, what was God thinking when he created sex? What, what, was, what was that all about? So that's where we're going uh, today. So uh, if, you, if, you, if you're downtown and you're on our um, Hope, My Hope CC, which if you're not, you want to be, you can just go to our, our webpage, hopecc.com, and then just sign up. There's a way to do that and get somebody to get you in. But it's kind of our way of we pass out information and all that. you got a list of all the questions we'll be doing this summer. It's on CORE's Monday communication, Monday musings, he calls it. Uh, and I sent some to a few weeks back. He sent all 10. This is the one we're going after uh, this particular week. Now, some of us grew up in homes where, uh, you know, there was very, very, very little talk about this issue completely, right? Like, for instance, in my home, I'm going to give you um, my, the sex talk that I got. There. You just got the sex talk that I got. <laughs> Uh, good luck, basically, you know. Uh, it was a little more extensive than that, but not much, uh, what was going on. Or maybe you were raised in a, a home where uh, the, the idea of just putting fear into you about sex was, was the way that it was communicated. I love what Tony Kampala says about that. We were taught that sex is a dirty, filthy thing, and you should save it for the person you marry. So that's just, <laughs> that sounds nice, right? Or the complete opposite. Uh, maybe you maybe you're here today, and and uh, maybe you were, and maybe you still aren't. And that's okay. We man, if you're here today, we're really happy with that. But we just view religion as as really a bad thing. It's like like toxic. In fact, like Christopher Hinchin says in his book, uh, his book is called "God Is Not Great: How Religion Poisons Everything." I'm not sure what he what his opinion is on this. I'm trying to. Uh, anyway, very interesting. If you know anything about Christopher Hinchins, uh, his brother is, does anybody know? Peter Hinchins. Peter Hinchins is a conservative columnist in England, a uh, strong Christian. And Christopher Hinchins is a very strong anti-religion, anti-God. Uh, I don't know exactly where he falls politically, but a fascinating. In fact, if you look on the Wikipedia site for this guy, it says... <laughs> that even when they were children, they didn't get along. It's like, well, why would you put that on your Wikipedia site? But anyway, it says they didn't get along, and so they they still don't, I guess. But uh, he says this. He says, there still remains four irreducible objections to religious faith. Number one, that it wholly misrepresents the origin of man and the cosmos. In other words... it's a wrong way of thinking that there was an ultimate capital C cause or intelligent design or God who had a purpose and created us. That's wrong. That leads then to number two, that because of this original error, it manages to combine the maximum of servility. I had to look that word up. I put it in italics there so I understand what it means. It means basically that This idea that there is a God makes me a servant of that God. It makes me someone who has to please Him, and I look, therefore, kind of down on myself. It's interesting. With the maximum of solipsism. I really had to look that word up. No idea what that word meant. And it's an idea that it's almost the flip idea. And the flip of the idea is that I actually matter in the universe. There is purpose to my life. Because if you truly are an atheist, if you truly believe it's just time plus chance, it logically follows, and, and, and Christopher Hitchens is exactly right here, that it, it has to lead to there is no ultimate meaning or purpose to our lives. You, you have to go there. You can go about your business. You can enjoy things or whatever, but there isn't any real dead center purpose to things. And he's not the only one who argued that. That is the logical conclusion of true atheism. He says, then, number three, that it, is the, that it is both the result and the cause of dangerous sexual repression. So in other words, if there is this God and I have to serve him and also that gives me meaning in my life, therefore what he, what I think he says about a bunch of ethical things, not just sexuality, but primarily sexuality. What he says about that is, if that, if that all isn't true, then that's extremely repressive to other people. And then fourth, and that it is ultimately grounded on wish thinking. That's where you can go potentially with this, if you void the thing completely of who God is. And that's what, what Christopher Hitchens would, would do. And I don't think it's any surprise. You're in a church. This is a Christian church. We're not gonna hold that position. We're going to hold that God has have something to say. In 2013, we did a series called Gospel Sexuality, asking basically, uh, what is a healthy way of letting the Bible inform us about everything, including our sexuality? And uh, in that series, uh, as I, as I kind of started kicking that series off, and then Pastor Corded a lot of the messages as well, I came across 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I just want to do this as a bit of an introduction to what we're going to do today. So it's going to give me some of my, what I'm going to call presuppositions. I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. Here we go. Uh, I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Okay, so this uh, this is a little bit confusing here. Let me explain what's going on. This is the Apostle Paul. He is writing to a church in Corinth he has gone there, he's been there for a long time, and he was explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Okay, so these people do not come from any kind of religious background, or it was, it was a religion, but it was paganism or that kind of a thing. Uh, di- very, very different from the Bible, all right? So they come to hear about Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ, uh, just as we sang about, uh, Jesus Christ pays the penalty, the penalty is satisfied now, right? God is satisfied with the the sacrifice of Jesus. And so my sins are covered by Jesus Christ if I put my trust in Him, if I personally acknowledge Him, if I say yes to Him, allow Him to be my personal Savior. If that happens, then you are forgiven. So then they come up with these phrases. And the Apostle Paul is going to push back on these phrases. And here's the phrases. I have the right to do anything. If that's true, then I can do anything. And Paul says, what if it's not beneficial? I have the right to do anything, but what if, it's, what if it masters you? What if it takes control of you? Then you say, food for the stomach and the stomach food, but God will destroy them both. In other words, Paul is saying here what they are saying is, hey, Paul, we're reading the Bible. All they have is the Old Testament at that time. The New Testament is still forming. And when we read the Bible, uh, there's all these laws in here about food. And we're not Jewish, and so you've told us those are no big deal that we don't have to worry about these food laws. We can eat pork chops and bacon and whatever else, right? And it's fine. So if that's true, the link is, and what will get us to the next verse, the link is, well, that must be true in every area. Like, there there really isn't any ethics I need to follow anymore. I can just let it go, especially in the sexual area. And this was Corinth. Uh, Corinth was known for being as much of the the ancient... uh, Ancient world at that time, very, very sexual in nature. And Corinth uh, was that way. And so they're just kind of like, what does it matter? So look at Paul says, he, this is how he says. He says, the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So in other words, how you were created is a certain thing. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? It's very interesting here. So he's not, he's not going to shame them for their, for their behavior. He's just saying, I want you to understand in the gospel who you are, who you are in the gospel. You are going to be raised, going to be raised with Christ. He will raise us at one point in time. Your bodies are members of Christ. You're united with him. And that's actually you weren't made for sexual immorality. It's going to go on. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against their own body. Interesting, right? So it's interesting. He says there's something different about sexual sin. Not that it's worse, but he's saying there's something different about it. It's of a different kind. And there's something that hits deep within our identity with this. It's like inside. It sins against their own body, not outside, okay? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Who you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. He just preaches the gospel all over them. This is who you are. God cares for you. God loves you. God bought you. God rescued you. Therefore now, honor God with your body. Not be ashamed and... What's wrong with you? All that. No, no, not that. This is who you are. Therefore, honor God with your body. From this, 2013 and today, I came up with what I call, oops, I'm sorry, I forgot about this. Uh, uh, Brendan Byrne Ber- says this, verse 16 displays a psychological insight into human sexuality, which is altogether exceptional by first century standards. He insists that it is an act which, by reason of its very nature, engages in expression the whole personality in such a way as to constitute a unique mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment. In other words, there is something deeply personal about our sexuality. Paul totally acknowledges that. No doubt. So here's my three presuppositions. Presupposition is a fancy word basically mean this. It's my starting point today. And if this isn't your starting point, I... Totally, I can acknowledge that. Maybe that's something we could do if you want to do email or something uh, here. But right now, this is where I'm starting from based on this, and then I'm going to build off that. Three presuppositions. Number one is that sexuality is incredibly personal because it lands deeply on relational and identity issues. Two, we need the gospel to inform us about our sexuality. There's just so much out there that hits us, that we need the gospel to inform us. And three, uh, everyone's sexuality is broken. No, no, no one's worse or better. We live in a fallen world. We'll get to that in just a minute. We'll get, if we live in a fallen world. Uh, there's nothing, there is no second-class citizen here in the sexual area. Everybody is broken. It's, it's all not the way it's supposed to be. We'll talk about that in just a bit. That's my starting point And we're going to launch off uh, from that. So the point this morning is, uh, and actually we're going to do two weeks on this. So uh, this week is going to be the issue, uh, what was God thinking when he created sex? What what, what exactly was he thinking when he did this? What's the point? Why do that? And then secondly, which is, it's a great question, and and we got questions kind of along all sides of this, was what do you do with current issues uh, that are happening in our culture and, and within us, and how do we respond to them? And that's going to be Pastor Core next week, okay? So there's this, and then there's kind of a two-week. Last week, we talked about the Bible, learned a whole bunch of things. I, I was really encouraged, and I know I preached. it sounds funny, but I, I was encouraged just to restudy this and to look at what does the Bible say about itself, and what does it affirm, and what do we believe it to be true? We believe that it is true. We believe that it's infallible. We believe that it's inerrant. We believe that it's life-giving. We believe that it takes a lot of study and interpretation and knowing the culture and the times and all that. We, we've got to spend time. We know that it, we believe in what's called progressive revel, uh, revelation. In other words, things are introduced, and we'll do this in just a minute, and then that concept gets further explained as we go along in Scripture, and, and they get more and more and more data points, and we get a full understanding of what's going on. And, and so that's what I want to go after today is what does the Bible teach about what's the point? And so if you're uh, brand new to hope, uh, you're getting your money's worth today because today we're going Genesis to Revelation. And I mean it. <laughs> so we're going the whole Bible, uh, not everything in between, but we are going to cover uh, quite a bit of ground. And what we're basically doing is picking high points along the way throughout Scripture and saying, what is it that Scripture teaches us about what, why did God do this? What's his deal? So, with that said, Genesis, starting the very first verse. In the beginning, God created. So we all do respect to Christopher Hitchens. Yep, disagree with him. We do think that there's a designer. It's God. He's the one who did this. How he did it, I don't know. wasn't there. But he did it completely on his own. And he was uh, uh, in, in charge of this whole thing. Was it a day? Was it a billion years billions and billions, Carl Sagan. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. But but he did, he was the one, uh, he's the one that, that caused this to take place. And when it comes to humanity, there's something very special. In Genesis 1, it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So in other words, when, when we get to all the rest of creation, somehow has the fingerprint of God upon it. Scripture talks about that the, the uh, nature itself is a way for people to look at it and see that there's a, a designer. There's a, there is a God just by looking at the beauties and the wonders of creation. And there's something special beyond that about humans. Humans bear the image of God. Everything else has the, the fingerprint of God, but this is the image of God. It's his, it's his, his resemblance. Now, it's, we're not God, but we're, there's a resemblance there. And right from the very beginning, he wants to go out and say male and female. He created them. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, we get an expanded version of what actually happened as God was creating. And so we pick up this story. Adam is created first. He is alone. When you get to Genesis 2... Adam's set out to work and there's things that happen. But when you get to verse 18, God says, It is not good that Adam is alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, a lot of people look at this and say the word helper seems derogatory. That's not what it's meant to be. The word helper there is means fit or the one who comes comes in and alongside in a way that is in a lot of ways, and it's equal, or and sometimes it's even used as it's greater. For instance, God is described as the helper of Israel. So this is not a value thing. No, no, don't, that's not what it's saying here. It's saying someone who's going to be a perfect companion for Him. All right? And so if you're familiar with the story, and I have to do this today, I've got to kind of move through things because we're going to, just for the sake of time, even though we're not yet short, <laughs> I still have to do it. Uh, what he's going to do here next is he brings before Adam all of the animals. And Adam is, is there's a couple things going on. Adam's going to name them as they're walking by. But it says that, that he also is uh, looking for a helper, right? So God brings all the different animals before Adam, and he names them, and then just says, uh, giraffe, but uh, I don't really want to hang out the giraffe. And we get close Beagle. Beagle. I have a beagle. Beagles. Bark. Yeah, that's, I, uh, I mean, not, maybe, maybe kind of man's best friend, but not man's helper, okay? Not, not, there's not much value add to Dakota, the beagle at our house, you know? She's there. She's great. We love her, but you know, I'm saying, I just, yeah, yeah whatever. So, uh, so all that happens, and then after there's not found a suitable helper, God does something. And it says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. So ribs could be like a piece or a chunk. Okay, so it took a chunk of Adam. It's the only thing in all of creation in the account that is made not from nothing or the dust. Eve is created out of a chunk of Adam. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, if if you've had premarital counseling with me, you know I like to make a big deal about this. So I ask, where, where was God compared to where Adam was taking a nap? Where did he build or construct or fashioned or whatever the phrase says, made a woman out of this chunk of Adam? Where did he do it? They're like, I don't know. It's like, well, was he right next to Adam? No, wasn't right next to Adam. Why? Because it says he brought her to the man. So there's some distance. Was it five feet? Was it 500 feet? Was it five miles? I don't know. But there's something that happens, and God brings Eve to Adam. It's important. You'll see that in a little bit, quite a bit, actually. Hang on to that thought for about 20 minutes. <laughs> the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Isn't it interesting? The first thing he says. So you see, you see God bringing, bringing Eve and Adam, the first thing he says is, that's now a helper for me. He doesn't say, ow, 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 oh, yeah, that's great. Ow. No, he just goes beyond the pain and looks at her and says, you're the deal. Since he's so used to naming stuff, he gives her a name. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And now comes Genesis 2:24, which is the most important verse in the Bible on what God was thinking regarding sex. In fact, from this point on, sex and marriage and all that, right? This is it. And from this point on, it's going to build on this one verse. And here it is, verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. You leave your previous family. You leave the authority of that household. You have some ceremony, some legal way, some, you know, and we call it a wedding ceremony here uh, between the friends, God, human witnesses, in this case the state of Minnesota, and you're now legally joined together. And then they become one flesh. One flesh means a lot of things. But it means sex, right? There's a sexual intercourse happening. So that's what takes place. And there's an order to that that God designs and puts there. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And that's the way, that's what God was thinking. Now, we're going to get into, I think the rest of the Bible kind of unpacks some of what was actually happening here. That lasts for a little while, and then they fall into sin. After they fall into sin, everything changes. And God pronounces a curse on the serpent, a curse on the woman, and a curse on the man. Or it could just be said, and I think this is probably more accurate. He's just describing what the curse will be like now that sin has entered the world. And he uses the three different people to describe a bunch, not all of, but all of what this will mean to live in what we call now a fallen world. And that's where we live now, in a world where things are not exactly the way they're supposed to be. He looks at the woman and he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. In other words, there's this beautiful relationship before where they were both naked and felt no shame. In every area of their life, they were naked and felt no shame. And now, now, there's gonna be this thing going on And the word desire sounds positive, but it's not a positive word. It's used in Genesis chapter 4 to describe their two offspring, Cain and Abel. Cain is thinking of killing Abel. And God says, don't do it. Sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. (sighs) Right? Ah, that's That's what this means. So your desire will be for your husband is another fancy way of saying rule. You're just, you're, just, you're going to rule over him. He's going to rule over you. Well, yeah, you burned the bacon. Well, you're the one that left it when well, you did that. Right? That's what it is. That's the fall. To Adam, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. To Adam, cursed is the ground. You live on a cursed planet now. It's going to cause, I'm not going to read all this, but it's, it, it's going to cause hard work and you're going to have to sweat your brow until you eat food. And that, that world, The life is not going to be the way it's meant to be. There was work before, but now it's going to be toilsome and troublesome, right? If you're wondering why your job is difficult, thank Adam, right? The curse. And then it says, until you return to the ground. That's a new concept for Adam. Why am I going back to the ground? Since from it you were taken, dust you are, and to dust you will return. That's death, Death is not a natural part of life. Death is a part of the curse because we live in a fallen world. Right after this, after the curse, you find, Je- oh, excuse me, oh, I think C.S. Lewis nails this, just completely nails this when he talks about in Chronicles of Narnia where he says it's always winter but never Christmas. Des- describing that's what, life is like in a fallen world. It's winter. It feels cold in some ways. Now, don't get me wrong. There's great things that happen in this life. I love to laugh. I love to have joy. But at the same time, there's deep sorrow, and there's deep pain, and there's deep struggle, and there's failure, and there's sin. All kinds of things. Just open a newspaper. You can see it. Always winter, but never the joy and completion that Christmas would bring. When you get to Genesis chapter 4, we keep moving on in, in our little study here of, of sexuality through the Scriptures. And it says, and I use the ESV here because the, I usually use the New, New International Version. That's the version I prefer. Uh, and I'll explain why in just a minute. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Okay, so the firstborn is a guy by the name of Cain uh, to Adam and Eve, and uh, it says the way that that child came about is because Adam knew Eve. Adam knew. That's the word, knew, right? Now, for those of you wondering where children come from, it does not come from playing 20 questions to another person. Oh, I feel like I really know you now. Uh-oh. No. <laughs> the NIV does a great job, and they interpret the verse for you. It says, and now Adam made love to his wife, and she conceived again. gave Right? So it it, it fills it out. But the author's trying to get something across to you. That that just having sexual intercourse is not what this, the point was. The point was an intimacy, a knowing another person, a safe, covenanted intimacy, right? And that's what he's trying to get across here. And then there's a benefit. Benefit was this child. Now, as we move along from there, I'm going to go really quick. So I'm going to go from Genesis almost to the end of the Old Testament. So, long story. You get this, uh, you you get this uh, people called Israel. And they are, they are got, starts with one guy by the name of Abraham, has a son. Uh, It goes uh, many sons from there, and it, it just starts expanding. And the story of Israel being God's special people on the earth is filled with high points and low points. And then the high points come back up a little bit, and the low points get a little deeper, and the high point and low. And it just kind of keeps going and it keeps going way down. Until you get to a point in Israel's history where God says, Enough! That's it! You're no longer a nation. And he, they were in a land called Israel, and in that country, other countries came in, defeated them, and not only defeated them, but took them, many of them, some of them stayed right there, but many of them they took out and brought them into other lands. Those are called the exiles, okay? So during that exilic period in the Old Testament, when all these nations had taken over uh, the people of Israel, and they're all over the place, God raised up some people called prophets, and they wrote to them, these people in the exiles, and what God is trying to do is to get them to understand what got them there. One of those prophets is a guy by the name of Ezekiel. Ezekiel uh, is a really interesting prophet. And uh, I'm going to read to you from Ezekiel 16. I'm going to read only, I'm going to read about half the chapter uh, because I want to keep my job. So <laughs> you can read the other half on your own. It gets really graphic, okay? And so we want to keep this thing PG-13. I would say that's... Uh, 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 yeah, pretty close to R. So, I'm, I'm maybe not, maybe a little less, but I'm going to let you read it on your own <laughs> homework. Uh, no, everybody's like, hey, get me to Ezekiel 16. Yeah, what what is he talking about? What God's trying to communicate to them is what happened and who exactly are you, Israel? And I, he's going to explain this. Here it goes. The word of the Lord came to me. So remember last week we talked about the Bible and the Bible is not God dictating to them saying, write these exact words, except for a few instances where this is, he says, Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practice and say, quote, I want you to dictate this. So this is one of those dictated parts of the Bible. So this is God speaking now. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now let me just, that's, let me just, contextualize that for today. Let me just say it this way. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of Wisconsin. Your father was a Badger fan. Your mother yelled, go Packers, right? This, well, that went over poorly in this service. Maybe you have a little resistance here. Sorry about that. Uh, I don't know what else uh, to say, but uh, let just pray for you. The, uh, so the, the concept is, is, these are, this is He is saying you don't have any noble birth whatsoever. He is saying you actually come from your enemies. These are as the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites. They were not people that they looked highly upon. That's who you are, he says. On the day you were born, now he's going to use an analogy. Here's the analogy. Your cord was not cut. So you're laying there and you've got your afterbirth still attached to you. Nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by. There's nothing noble about you. But I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live! Live! I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Okay, it's an analogy. So any, at any point in time, you can go, ooh, that's weird, right? I know, but it's an analogy. So you're already like, okay, there's a guy that walks by, and he's an older guy because he sees, and then now he's going to marry this. When Ooh, that's weird. Don't, 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 that's not the analogy. Just let the analogy be weird when it's weird because it's weird, and just let it go. What God is saying is you were nothing special about you. I helped you. I raised you. And then when you were old enough for love, I covenanted with you. I married you. I gave you my solemn oath. I entered in covenant with you, and you were mine. And look how he describes this. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck, and I put a ring on your nose popular now too. Earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flower. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you Made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. What's going on here? The the language is one of, I adore you. I've spent all my resources on you. I put myself, I poured myself into you. I gave you every luxury I doted on you. I wanted you to become as great as you possibly could, and I poured myself into you, and that's what I did. And now look what happens. Here's where it twists. But you trusted in your beauty, and you used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became His. You took some of the garments to make gaudy high places, where you carried on your prostitution. You went to Him, and He possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered cloths to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. So the very things I did to make you beauty, now you're using to shun me and push me away. And you're going, out, you're going away from me, and you're going to other gods, and you're going to other people, in this case, other lovers. Also, the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave to you to eat. You offered as fragrant incense before the Lord. That is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, if you keep reading, he's going to go on to say, listen, most prostitutes, uh, when, 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 they, when they sell their sex, uh, they get paid. You don't. You pay. And he goes on and on to talk about this, like a scorn lover idea. And God uses this analogy here to get them to understand what has happened in our relationship. This is what has happened. This is why you're in exile. Okay? That's a key place We're going to come back to this in a little bit. Now, when we get to the New Testament, what does Jesus have to say about this? Jesus says, uh, speaks about this. It says, "When, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Religious rulers of the day, they're testing him. Not in a positive way. It's not like taking a math test. This is a they're going to ask him a tricksy question. They asked, and here's the tricksy question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Every word of that sentence has been pre-thought, pre-meditated. they are out to get him because they know that however he answers this question, they're gonna follow it up with a gotcha, we gotcha. However you answer this, it's an unanswerable question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. If he says, sure, go ahead, they'll say, well, don't you believe what God thinks about marriage? And if they say no, they'll say, well, let's say it says it's okay in the Bible, so therefore you don't believe the Bible. They're gonna get him, right? And normally Jesus does not deal with tricksy questions. He just kind of goes, pfft, uh, Tells them a story or something. This time, he answers them. It's fascinating. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, Genesis 1, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, Genesis 2, 24, which we've read before. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And it's key in that sentence where, where, where the question, where they say, for any and every reason. So at that time, culturally, it was a deal where if a man wanted to divorce a woman in that culture, All they'd have to do is look at the woman and say three times, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee. She's out. That's it. And if she has to leave in that way with shame, for whatever reason, you can burn the bagels in the morning, and she's gone, she's faced with a life of poverty and perhaps worse. Okay? Aha! Now we got you, Jesus. You answered it. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Moses said, said that. He said, if you're going to divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce. Why? So she's not filled to a life of poverty. If she doesn't have the certificate of divorce, she cannot get remarried. She has this, she can get remarried. In that culture, a, a woman on her own, especially maybe middle age, she's got very, very few options. Perhaps to become a prostitute would one of the options she would have to live. Okay? So he says, give her the certificate of divorce. Ah, look at Jesus answered. Moses permitted. He didn't command you to do this. He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and then the New Testament offers some other places where it is. And if you ever want, listen, this is not a message on divorce and remarriage, but if you want to go back, I've got a couple of sermons on that, where you look at, uh, it's debated, I understand, but I believe there are places in the New Testament talks about that, yeah, this is an option. It's, a, it's an okay option, it's, but it's not God's design. Marries another woman commits adultery. It is not God's design. If you don't believe that, get to know a divorced person. I've had one divorced person say to me, I could not worship a God that believed what I just went through was in any way, shape, or form part of His design, Right? So that's what Jesus is trying to get across. You're just leaving your wife for any such reason. That's, that's not God's design. Now look at the, look at the disciples. I, one of the reasons that I believe the Bible to be true is how dumb the disciples come off. The disciples say, if that's the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Now listen, if I were the editor and I was trying to make myself look good, that's out. Right? I'm not saying that. Whoa, wait, you mean I got to keep her? Even like she gets old and crinkly? Like saggy? Yeah, have you taken a look at yourself there, sport? Yeah, right. Uh, (laughs) Not me, of course, but you know. Uh, (laughs) It's like, are you kidding me, right? That's the situation. And then Jesus goes off and gives this teaching. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. So in that culture, there was uh, people who were sexually impotent, and also some were made that way. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs, celibacy, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it, Jesus himself. The the two big heroes in the New Testament are Jesus and the Apostle Paul, both single guys. They're, They're both single, both celibate. Keep going on. The Apostle Paul now. The Apostle Paul uh, is speaking to this, again, to the Corinthians. Later in that, right after what I read before, now in chapter 7, he says, the husband shall fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. The two become one. You don't, it's, it's an interesting phrase here, don't have authority, you're, you're in this together. And sex is part of that. Don't deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. And then we get to, uh, I think, where the Apostle Paul has been scratching his head, been looking at all these passages, and been thinking about them, and says, I think I got what's going on. And it's a famous passage that a lot of people you hear at weddings, that kind of a thing. And it's the Apostle Paul speaking into this. And the reality is, Uh, I I, I want you to look beneath the layer a little bit. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ said the church. For we are members of his body. I'm gonna finish this up in just a second, but I want you to, to see this real clearly. So get away from well, the Apostle Paul is, is get away from what's going on in marriage for just a second here. He's gonna use an analogy, and the analogy is Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives. How? Like Christ loved the church. how did Christ love the church? It says he gave himself up for her. What does that mean? Well, it means the cross. He went to the cross for the church. It was not Jesus' preference to go to the cross. In the garden, Gethsemane, he prays, Father, if there's any other way it's possible, may this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't, my preference is not to do this, but if there's no other way for us to be just and for us to be merciful towards sinners, that sin has to be paid. If there's any other way, let's do it, but there's not, I'll do it. The answer is there's no other way, so you got to do it. He says, I'm gladly going to do it. That's what it means. He gave himself up for, he lays down preference. And what happens? He makes her, now the her there is always the church. It's a little confused. People think it means a woman. No, it means the church because church is a feminine word in, in the original Greek. So it says to make the church holy, cleansing the church by the washing with water through the word, and to present the church to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any of the blemish, but holy and blameless. Stop right there. You have to stop and read this slowly. What's he saying? He's saying. That there's, there's a reason why Jesus does all this stuff. He cleanses the church. He cares for the church. He adores the church. He loves the church. He dotes on the church. Why? It says, to present her to himself as a radiant, beautiful, stunning church. And then he uses the word, without stain or wrinkle or any of blemish. What comes to your mind when you think of something being presented without stain or wrinkle or any of blemish? A wedding, right? You got this imagery of the you know the wedding dress and it's perfect and it says it says that Jesus is going to present to himself. This is where you get a little confused here because in the analogy Jesus is the father walking the daughter down the aisle. Jesus is walking the church down the aisle. Jesus is like God walking Eve down the aisle. And he's giddy can't wait to show this. I don't, again, I don't know how far it was. Whatever the distance was that God walked, he's a giddy to show Adam. And Jesus is preparing the church, the bride, in the analogy you're all the bride if you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus is preparing the bride for this is where the analogy gets weird, but just hang with me for Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is preparing you to come down here, and then Jesus, the groom, is watching this going, come on girl, come on. That's you. That's the point. It's not a small point. It's a big point. That's why he does this. I'll I'll prove that in just a second. In the same way husbands ought to love their wives their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we're members of his body. And then he quotes from Genesis 2, 24. Imagine that. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two become one in flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. What the Apostle Paul just said there is, we thought that, you thought that I was explaining marriage by using Christ and the church as an analogy? Let's back the bus up, way back to creation. God created marriage and sex to be an analogy of what he thinks about you. That's the point. Right? However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. If you go all the way to the last book of the Bible, we'll close with this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed. And there was no longer any sea. This is the end of the days. This is the when God makes all things new. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. What? What's this analogy? Of all the analogies you could use to describe the end of days when everything's going to be made right and we're going to have this intimate relationship with God, what does He use? The wedding moment when they come down that aisle prepared for her husband. So, with all that said, let me summarize God created sex to be received as a gift and exper- experienced at His di- uh, direction. In the covenanted relationship of a marriage, forever-increasing intimacy and benefit, that's all important. But what you have to scream, and what you have to scream to yourself if you're trying to understand sex today is simply this: it is an illustration of his relationship with, with us. That's the point. What's the why did God create sex? So you could know God. That's the reality. Now, What does that practically mean? Very practically, very quickly. This week, I I stumbled across Shannon Etheridge's webpage, and she's got a book written, The The, uh, Passion Principles, in which she starts to get a gospel sexuality. uh, What does that practically mean? I I was really encouraged by this. She, She writes about where some of this started to click for her, and it happened when she was working on her master's degree. Let me read just a couple paragraphs from her. Website. I was working toward my master's degree in counseling, human relationships, at Liberty University when my human sexuality professor, Dr. David Lawson, posed this shocking question to the class. How is your relationship with God sexual in nature? Silence. All of us students sat there on our desks wondering, is this a joke? It was no joke. It was our honest-to-goodness, serious-as-a-heart-attack assignment to discuss this deep theological question in a small group setting for the following two hours. Two hours? Wouldn't two minutes be enough, I thought? Little did I realize that, I, that we could have chewed on this topic for two full days and still not have exhausted all of the possibilities. Our small group tossed about all kinds of insightful responses, such as the fact that in both our sexual relationships with our spouses and in our spiritual relationships with God, there is, and now she lists this, what you're really learning. Trust, vulnerability, genuine interest, full acceptance, deep desire, true communion, closeness, connection, life-giving transference, openness, honesty, humility, risk, intimacy, passion, purpose, pleasure, transcendence, euphoria, completion, synergy. That's just her list. You could do more. And all of those are not met perfectly in human experiences, but they are met perfectly with God. It's an analogy. It's trying to get something across, whether you're married or single. This topic is a huge topic. Like I said, we're going to spend another week on it next week. If you got grabbed an insert on the way in, I have a bunch of resources for further study. If you want to get that on the website, hopecc.com, Up it'll pop at least now for a little while. You can go to the, once the sermon is up. Let me just close uh, by just asking you this. And this is the point of today. Are you letting the gospel inform your everything? Fill in the blank. Everything goes in there, including and especially sexuality. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you for, I just want to thank you for this period of time where we as a church can wrestle through tough questions. Uh, I just pray for next week as well as we look at some of the current issues and how we respond to them. God, I, I, I just pray that we would be so absolutely blown away by how much you care for us and how much you love us and how deep your love goes for us, we'll never quite fully grasp. And that you are worth us singing praise and honor and, and strength and thanks and glory forever and ever. And so, Father, I pray that you would allow us to look at everything through who Jesus is, who the gospel, what the gospel is for us. God, and I know when you bring up a topic like this, and I know Pastor Coral will have a chance to preach more on it next week. I know it brings up a lot of hurt and pain. So I pray for your hand of healing, even in this room. Lord God, more than anything, would we not allow sex to become king, but you are king? Would we not allow our our temptations or failures to be the things that that we get identity from, but we get our identity in the gospel? and what you've done for us. Do that in this room, we pray in Jesus' name.